All right, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 today. So turn with me there to Revelation chapter 3. By the way, uh, so we sent out an email this week uh, on behalf of the Mennonite home. We have a number of people in our church who live in the home and, and are there, uh, a number of family members who attend our church here. And so the Mennonite home uh, has been an outbreak uh, for the last little while as a couple of staff members have tested positive. And so just in talking to the home and in talking to different healthcare professionals, uh, basically what has happened is the home has been vaccinated. The residents have been vaccinated. That's all been offered to them most of them have gotten it, uh, but they haven't updated the rules for what constitutes an outbreak to reflect the fact that there are now vaccinations out there. And so they're locked in their rooms again under outbreak. And, and I've been there lots. Their rooms are not huge. And so to be there 24-7 uh, for weeks on end, and they've spent a lot of time in that state for the last year. And so we as a church just said like, well, why don't we just ask our professionals and our, our healthcare workers and politicians and everything if they can just start to move the, the ball forward on looking at those things and updating those things and giving some more freedom. So I don't have any news for you on those updates yet, but I liked this story uh, that Rick Nichols, who's our local member of provincial parliament, uh, his office called the church this week. And so Susan answered the phone and uh, the, it's one of his administrators said, uh, okay, so you're Meadowbrook Church. So how many people attend your church? And Susan said, well, that's a weird question. Why are you asking that? And she said, I want to know how many more of these letters we're going to be getting. <laughs> and yeah, why not, right? So they had a really good talk and, and Rick Nichols is on it and he's talking to the home and he's talking to healthcare authorities. And so that's what we wanted. We just wanted to do our part, right? And, and it's easy to feel like we're kind of helpless in these things and we don't know what to do or anything, but we can do something. And so I am happy for what we've done just to hopefully give a, a bit of a kick to get things moving down the road. And so we'll keep you posted as anything comes up. But uh, I just like that story. And I just thought that's pretty cool that Meadowbrook got involved in that way. So thank Thank you for those of you who participated and were involved in writing that letter. So Revelation 3, uh, we're wrapping up the chapter this morning. As we go through our series Apocalypse Now, we are walking through the book of Revelation a little bit at a time. So today we are wrapping up this first section of the book. Uh, we'll take a break for a couple of weeks. Next week is Mission Sunday. Then we have Easter Sunday after that. And then we will pick it up again afterwards. That is the plan. And so we are just uh, digging through this book a little at a time and uh, we have been in this part of the book where uh, as Revelation has gone out to these seven churches in the first century, Jesus has a specific message for each of the seven churches. And so we're at the seventh and final message today. But I was, uh, this past week was not a super easy week. I had a just kind of a bummer of a week. And just personally a little bit and just ministry-wise, and it was just nothing like, you know, earth-shattering so much, but just kind of a, a tough week. And uh, Thursday morning, I woke up at 1.30 in the morning and then just couldn't get back. Just I pinged like wide awake, like the sun was up. It was just, I was wide awake. Uh, toss and turn for a couple hours, and I couldn't get back. And so I have learned years ago, I've told you this before, if you're ever up in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, why don't you spend some time in prayer, right? Because maybe the Lord has something he wants to say, or maybe he has something that he wants you to pray for. So whenever, it always takes me too long to figure it out. So I tossed and turned for a couple hours, and then was like, all right, maybe God has something to say here in this moment. And so as I lie there, I prayed Samuel's prayer, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. I'm, I'm here, I'm up, you're up, so hey, if you want to chat, uh, I am here and I am listening. I'm not distracted by anything right now. 
And so two things I actually felt like the Lord said that night. I'll share one now. I'll share one at the end of the message. But the first was, as I was lying there, uh, I just, not audibly, not even like a crystal clear, you know, inner voice or anything like that, but just a, a very strong sense of the words, just hold on. And then the peace that flooded over me in that moment as I lay there in my bed, that it, it was the Holy Spirit, undeniably, just hold on. And as I sat in those words and reflected on those words and enjoyed the peace of those words, I thought, you know, that's really been the message of these letters to the seven churches over and over and over again. Jesus, in different ways, has been saying to these churches, hold on, right? Don't give up. Keep persevering. And I'll be honest with you, when we started the book of Revelation, uh, when we just, we talked about it as a staff, we prayed about it, what should the next sermon series be? We landed on this. And I thought, you know what? It'll be fun to, like, jump into, uh, you know, what, what is the beast out of the sea, right? And what does this represent? And what is that about? And how does it tie into maybe some end time stuff? And what should we be looking for? And how are we the church in the midst of all these things? And so I kind of thought that, you know, we'll have the, the introduction, you know, Revelation 1, and then 2 and 3, we'll get through the letters of the churches. And then the really interesting stuff is going to end up happening as we move forward in the book. And I don't know about you, but I have found the letters to the seven churches so powerful and profound for us in this time. Like, I just kind of wasn't expecting it. I thought it was the, the more profound stuff was going to come later. But as we've gone through each of these letters to the churches and just looking at them with fresh eyes and trying to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, I've gone, man, these are so profound for our church right now. And so the, the message of Jesus to his churches of keep going in hardship, don't stop, in persecution, don't give up, but just hold on, is just such an important message for us right now. And so we are coming to the last one, the last of the specific letters. So we're in Revelation chapter 3, and let's take a look at our text. We are starting in verse 14, to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So as we have gone through this, these seven uh, different churches, we're coming to the last one, the last specific message. So we started, there was a message to Ephesus, up to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, down to Sardis, over to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we've been kind of going around the clock. There's been a clockwise motion to this. And that was probably because, as John wrote it on Patmos and sent the letter out, it probably started in Ephesus and was sent around. It was traveled around. And so there was a kind of natural geographical order uh, to the way these letters have been laid out. And so as we've been talking about, each of these specific shout-outs that goes to the churches is a little message where Jesus is talking about what is going on specifically with you. The book of Revelation is for everybody, and then the message is going to all the churches, but each church gets a little bit of specific attention where Jesus typically starts off by introducing himself, bringing a revelation of who he is. There's typically some encouragement of here's some things that you're doing well. There is typically some correction and some rebuke for some things that they need to work on. And then there is a promise of reward for the one who perseveres, for the one who stays true, for the one who is victorious. And so it's not exactly that model for each letter, but that's generally how it goes. And what each church is struggling with in general is somewhat similar. They are all uh, living in the same time, in the same part of the world. Rome rules the world. Rome demands that the emperor is worshipped, not just honored, but worshipped. Rome was full of, of all sorts of idol worship and false gods, and there was a lot of pressure to worship there. There was a lot of social pressure to be involved in these things. Your business would suffer if you didn't worship the emperor. Your social life could suffer if you didn't worship some idol. Uh, And so there was a lot going on to push you to turn away from Jesus. And so those are not our specific struggles in the same way. Maybe no one is pushing us to worship Justin Trudeau, or, or we're not feeling that same pressure to worship other idols, but we all have similar type things in terms of we all have stuff that can pull us away from the way of Jesus. And so the problem with each of these churches is that they're living in this culture, the the world surrounds them, and that is true of us as well. And it will, I think, always be part of the problem of the church that the world starts to creep in. The ways of the culture start to creep in. The problem with most of these churches is that they are starting to look like the culture around them and not in a good way. They're starting to take on some of the qualities of the culture that are not good, and that is certainly true of the church of Laodicea. It has been said that if there is any one of these seven letters that represents the North American church, it's today's. That the church of Laodicea is actually a pretty good picture of the North American church. And so we can listen maybe extra hard today for what the Spirit is saying to us. Because this one might apply to us a little bit more than some of the others. So, Laodicea. Incredibly wealthy city incredibly wealthy city. All the banks were in Laodicea. And so just as we know from places like New York and Toronto and London, wherever the banks are, that's where all the money is. And wherever the money is, there's an awful lot of influence. There's an awful lot of power. And so Laodicea is the banking center. They have the ability to lend money. They have the ability to collect money. And so there's a lot of wealth going on there, as well as they had a lot of industries that were very, very good. And so Laodicea was famous for its banking. It was famous for its wealth. It was also very famous for its fashion. And so Laodicea were experts in these black sheep that created this black wool that was very luxurious. And so they created this black clothing that was very expensive and very stylish. And so they were kind of like Paris in that sense of they were like kind of a fashion center as well as a financial center. And so they were famous for their wealth. They were famous for their black sheep clothing. And then they were famous for a medical center that they had there that dealt specifically with disorders of the eye. 
And so one of the things that they had, that they had created, that had made this city so wealthy, was they had created an eye ointment, an eye salve that you would put on your eye that would help treat certain things. And so it worked, apparently. History talks about it being effective, and so they sold a lot of it. And so they were wealthy on multiple fronts. They had all the banking, they had this fashion industry, they had this medical industry going on. And so there's tons of money pouring into Laodicea. They are unbelievably wealthy. And so we've talked for the last couple of weeks about this great earthquake, right, in 17 AD. So it leveled the city of Sardis, it leveled Philadelphia, didn't hit Laodicea quite as bad, but they all rebuilt in different ways. And then years later, in AD 60, so that's not that long before this letter was written, in AD 60, another earthquake hits that hits Laodicea and levels it completely to the ground. The other cities weren't affected in the same way. So Laodicea had rebuilt after 17 AD, and then in 60 AD, this second an earthquake just levels them to the ground. And so Rome comes to the rescue. The empire comes to help out, just like they've done before. And so they come into Laodicea. They say, we'll give you a tax break. We're going to pour millions of dollars in to help you rebuild. We're going to give you all of our support. And Laodicea actually said, thanks, Rome. We're good. They had so much money that they rebuilt on their own. They didn't need any help at all. And if you think, man, even the size of a town like Leamington, if an earthquake happened where all of our houses were leveled and every structure downtown was leveled and the hospital was leveled and the Shirk Center was leveled, like everything, and for the town of Leamington to say, oh, how much do you need? I can write a check and just cover all of it. Like this is how wealthy Laodicea is. And as you get a hint of it in the letter, is that there is a pride about that, right? Like we as a city, hey, we've got everything we need. We don't need any help from anybody. And so Laodicea is incredibly self-sufficient. Like they just have all of this resource, all of this wealth on their side. Uh, and yet there's a church in there that is starting to take on some of that attitude in a way that is not good. So verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So each letter begins with Jesus introducing himself, and we learn something new about who he is. So Jesus says, I am the amen, or the amen. We can debate all day which one is right. Uh, I don't care which way you pronounce that, amen or amen. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is a witness to everything that goes on on earth as God. Uh, but he's also been a witness because he's been on the earth. He's actually witnessed what a human life is like. He knows what persecution is like. He knows what pain is like. He knows what suffering is like. And so we have a God on the throne who has been through what we go through. And there's not a faith out there that can claim that other than Christianity. That our God has gone through the fire alongside us and suffered with us. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. But he calls himself the amen, the amen here. And that's a powerful word. I mean, we can say it kind of flippantly, but amen at its core basically just means truth. That's what the word means. The word means truth. And so when Jesus says, I am the amen, he's saying, I am the truth. And that's nothing new. He has said that in John's gospel as well. I am the way and the truth and the life. And so that means that everything that he is is true. Everything that he says is true. And we can trust him because it is the truth. And so when Jesus says, I am the amen, that's, a, that's quite a statement. That's saying that everything he is and everything he does is the truth. So we say amen when somebody is praying and they finish and we say amen and everyone says amen. Like that's a powerful word to say. 
That's not just like, uh, let's put a stamp on the prayer and move on to something else. Like when you say amen at the end of a prayer, that's you saying, I believe that is truth. I believe in what was just said. I am adding my agreement to the prayers that were just prayed. When you say that when someone's preaching, that doesn't happen too much here. We're a pretty quiet church. But when you say amen or, or when you're having a conversation with someone and someone says something and you say amen, like that's a divine word. That's not just a head nod. Like, that's adding your, your powerful, committed agreement to the truth of what was just said or, or what was just prayed. That's you adding your part to it. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's the, that's where we add our, our agreement to this thing in a way where we are declaring, I believe, that that is truth. And so Jesus introduces himself, I am the amen, I am the true and faithful witness, I am the ruler of God's creation. And just so there's no doubt at all about who he is. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 and 16 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's Jesus. And so as he starts off the letter, Jesus says, hey, I'm the ruler of creation, just so you know. Your translation might say, I am the beginning of creation, or I am the first of creation. Uh, and, and it all points to the same idea, that Jesus is the one overseeing it all. And just the reminder, it also, it helps us exalt him, like it helps us worship him. I, anytime I read this passage, I feel worship rise up in me, as it just reminds me of who he is. But it also reminds us of who we are, and it reminds us of our place in the pecking order of things. Because we live our lives with ourselves usually kind of at the center, right? The center of attention, the center of, of the decisions that we're making and everything. We actually have to work hard to put other people first. We have to work hard to, to try and get Jesus in the center of that. But just so we know where we stand, when it comes to us and Jesus, all things have been created through him and for him. So why are you here? For him. You're here for him. Why were you created? Why did he make you? He made you for him. You are here to glorify him. You are here to serve him. And now out of his incredible goodness and mercy, he pours gifts and blessings back upon us. And, and he lavishes his love upon us. And he goes to the cross for us. And he rises from the dead for us because he loves us. But let's not ever think that that means we're the center of attention in this story. Right? We were created through him, by him, and we were created for him. And so it rips down the myth of I am the center of my own world. And it rips down the myth of I am in control of my own world. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the ruler over all creation. He is the only one who's actually in control. We've said over the past year, it's not that we've lost control of our lives. It's that the myth that we were ever in control in the first place has been taken away. Our life was always in his hands, first, or foremost, first and foremost. And so we are reminded of who he is, and we're reminded of who we are in him. Moving on, verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Huh. Amen, 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 amen. Huh. 
So as we have noticed in one other letter, no encouragement in this one either, right? There's no, Jesus doesn't have anything, here's what you're doing well. He jumps right into, here's the problem. I'm going to jump right to the problem. It starts with Jesus saying, I know your deeds. And we've talked in this little section that we've been working through of, that's true of all of us, and that's a fear of the Lord verse, right? It should be a little bit, that he knows and everything that we do will one day be laid bare before him. And so I have heard this preached, and, and you probably have as well. Uh, you're neither cold nor you're hot, you're lukewarm. Um, and we, we sort of equate that to like a spiritual temperature, right? Like you're, you're on fire for God, or you're like cold and distant towards God, and Jesus is mad because these people are kind of middle of the road. But that's not actually what this is getting at at all. That's a very kind of modern way to look at it because we talk about, uh, if you know, if, if it's a lukewarm marriage, you know what that means, right? Like if I use that phrase, then you're saying like, oh, the passion's maybe gone out of it, and it's not, it's not falling apart necessarily, but it's just kind of lost some of that heat. Uh, so we use that kind kind of modern way to look at this passage, but again, that's just not what it's really about. There's a very specific context to this that's important for us to know, and it all has to do with water. So for all of Laodicea's wealth, they didn't have access to good water, and, and they just, they never had that. They were never able to get that, and so Laodicea, just where it was situated, there was no good water close to them, and so what they had to do, what the Romans did that was brilliant, was the Romans came up with this idea of what were called aqueducts. So that's a picture of it up there. And they were just long bridges and trenches that carried water long distances. And so for the first time in human history, they were able to just kind of blanket the world with these aqueducts. And so you actually no longer needed to literally just build a town next to a lake or next to a river, because now you could send water different places. And that was the first time that that was able to be done on a massive scale, and it's a precursor to all of our modern plumbing. It goes back to this. The Romans figured out, if you can transfer water long distances, then you can really affect where you set up all these settlements and homes and things. And so Laodicea didn't have any good water, and so to the north of the city, there were hot springs. And hot springs are nice, right? I've never been in a literal natural hot spring, but I've been in lots of hot tubs, and so I get the gist of it, right? Hot water feels good. And so when you're sore and achy, hot water feels good. If you've got, you know, a cough in your chest, a, a hot, even a hot shower, right, can loosen things up. And so we've known for a long time that hot water uh, does good things for the body. There is something about it that is healing. There is something about it that brings relief. And so there were hot springs in the north, and they had to pipe the water down along these aqueducts to the city. And then in the south, up in the mountains, there was cold water. There were these cool mountain springs, just cool, beautiful, refreshing drinking water. Uh, and we need that just to live, right? We just need that water to live. And so they would pipe that in as well through these aqueducts. The problem was is that the water sources were so far away that by the time the water arrived in the city, it was no longer hot from the north. It was no longer cold from the south. It was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. And not only was it lukewarm, but it had picked up all sorts of crud on the journey. This was the downside of these aqueducts, is that, uh, you know, there's no filtration systems in the same way back then. And so uh, they would pick up, you know, different minerals that would run off into the water. And there were even times where enemies would come against Laodicea and they would dump stuff in the aqueduct a few miles north of the city so that, you know, water would come into the city that would make people sick. And so even though they had all this wealth and even though they could invest in all of this infrastructure and even though they figured out way to get the water into the city, the water wasn't really good for anything when it got there, right? You don't want to, if you're sore and achy, you don't want a lukewarm bath. 
And if you're just dying of thirst and just need some water to live, it's like you don't really want sludgy, lukewarm water that's full of all the minerals that have been picked up on the journey. And so that was one thing that they just never really got on top of. For all of their wealth, they were never able to figure out a way to get good water. And so when Jesus is tying this in, uh, he's not just saying like, hey, your spiritual temperature isn't what it's supposed to be, right? You're, you're not spiritually hot. You're not spiritually cold. I wish you were one or the other. Like, that doesn't even make sense, right? Why would Jesus say, I want you to be cold. I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. That doesn't, the context doesn't fit what we've turned that into. But what Jesus is getting at is there is no life happening in this church, is that you're good for nothing. Like you're not, you know, hot water does something good. Cold water does something good. You guys are not doing anything. There is nothing going on here that is life-giving. There is nothing going on here that is, that is helpful. There is nothing going on here that is good. And for the Laodiceans, who would have been pretty familiar that sometimes when you drink that sludgy water, you throw up, Jesus says, just like you guys do that, that's how I feel about you. And that's a sobering thought. The NIV tidies it up to say, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The Greek is, that's vomit he's talking about right there. I'm about to puke you up would be a better translation. And so, man, when the Son of God says to you, you make me want to puke, whew, and if that's true, that this is, hey, if there's any church that summarizes the North American church, the, the Canadian church, the American church, you go, all right, Lord, then what are you saying? What are you saying to us in this? Like, what, what are we to learn from this? And so Jesus says, there's, there's no life, there's no healing, there's no refreshing, there's nothing good coming here. You make me want to vomit. And then we get to the why in verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And so now we're getting into the why of it a little more. And just like the city of Laodicea was very wealthy and self-reliant, the city of, of Laodicea had built wealth and built industry and built fame and built security. The city of Laodicea, who when the earthquake happened and the Roman Empire with all of its power came to help, said, we don't need your help. We can do this ourselves. Some of that is now infiltrating into the church. Jesus isn't rebuking the city of Laodicea. He's rebuking the church of Laodicea. And he is saying, hey, you have been in this place where you are saying you don't need anything, right? You are leaning on your wealth. You are leaning on your own abilities. You are leaning on your industry. You are leaning on these things. You think you're good. You think you're great. But in heaven's eyes, you're not. He says, from heaven's perspective, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And what that probably is getting at is you have not received the gospel. Like you're going through the motion of church, but you, you have not received the gospel. You don't realize that you are still in this sinful place. You don't realize that you need the Lord. You are so self-sufficient that you have forgotten the fact that you're a sinner in need of saving. You've become so caught up in all you can do on your own. You're not recognizing how badly you need the Lord. 
And so while in the world's eyes, it looks like you're very successful, in heaven's eyes, it's the exact opposite of that. And any time we can lean on our own laurels, any time we can lean on our own ability, any time we can coast on our own gifting, any time we can just kind of be comfortable and sufficient and complacent, then the gospel is in danger in those moments. Because the nature of the gospel is, I can't do it on my own. The nature of the gospel is, I need help. The nature of the gospel is, I need Jesus. I can't do this by myself. And so what's probably happened in Laodicea is that they are so wealthy and comfortable that they have laid the gospel aside. They have missed that here. And that's why Jesus' reaction to them is so strong. It's you're calling yourselves Christ followers. You're calling yourself the church, but you are not actually walking with me. You are not actually following me. You are not actually trusting in me. You're trusting in yourself. And when it comes to money, Scripture has kind of, a, kind of a love-hate relationship with money. At times, money is talked about as the blessing of God. But a lot of times, and especially, I would say, primarily in the New Testament, it's not talked about as a blessing from God. We're warned about money more than anything in the New Testament. We're warned about it. Uh, when Jesus lived his life on earth, he was not really concerned with money at all. He was not trying to build wealth for himself. That was not something that he did. And so we have to take that warning as well. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Most of us are not wealthy uh, by North American standards, but by global standards, we're wealthy. We're a wealthy nation. We have so much. Uh, we, we just have such an over, above, and beyond abundance of resources, of government services, of all of these things. I mean, we, my wife lost her job for, for a good chunk of last year because of COVID. Uh, here comes curb payments, boom, right? Like right to your bank account to help you get through it. And, and it did. And so like we have all of this abundance that even, you know, in a situation where that should have been a major financial hit to the family, it really wasn't because the government was there to help because the government has wealth. We're a wealthy country. We're a wealthy in a wealthy part of the world. We didn't earn that and we don't deserve that. We just happen to be born here or we happen to have come here and so we have all this blessing here in Canada and so there is that warning because whenever we have lots it is always easy to lean on the lots that we have and put our trust in that and not actually put our trust in the Lord uh, Meadowbrook's always been a, a church that's been pretty comfortable financially. My first church was not at all. Uh, my first church, we were paycheck to paycheck, week to week. I didn't get paid all the time in that church. We didn't have enough. But man, we prayed for finances a lot more in that church than we pray for it in this church. Just because there's a trust that here we're, we're going to probably be okay. And so there's a, an edge that comes when we don't have a lot that presses us to the Lord that when we do start to have more, and I'm not just talking about money, but whenever we're comfortable in anything, we can start to lean into the comfort. We can start to rest in the comfort. And when we start resting in the comfort, resting in what we can do, resting in what we can build, resting in what our, our gifts, our strength, our perseverance can accomplish, then we're in danger of pulling away from the Lord whenever we're doing that. Whenever we're feeling comfortable, we can become complacent, and complacency is never a good thing. And so as Jesus is talking to this church, the, one of the reasons I like that I can be sarcastic sometimes is that Jesus is sarcastic sometimes, and so I feel like it's okay. Uh, Jesus and God both use irony in the scripture at times, and that's exactly what goes on here. So Jesus says, you say you're rich and you don't need anything, church, but in my eyes, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And for a city and for a church that puts so much uh, support behind its wealth and so much emphasis on we are wealthy 
and we have these beautiful black clothes that we sell to the world at high price, and we have this healing center with this ointment that you put on your eye and that can bring relief to eye problems. Like for a city that was marked by that, for a church that's obviously marked by that, for Christians who are putting all of their hope for the future in that, Jesus says, you guys actually need some gold. You actually need clothing. You actually need salve on your eyes. And you can only get those things from me. You see how specific he's speaking to this particular church with the the things going on in this city? You think you have gold, but you need to come to me for that. And you think you have these beautiful clothes, but in heaven's eyes, you're actually naked. I will give you white clothes that you wear that will cover your nakedness. And you think you have this great eye-saving industry, but I'm the one who makes you see. I am the one who takes the blinders off. I am the one, ultimately, who brings healing. And so he lets them know everything you're leaning on is actually not bringing you closer to me. It's the exact opposite. Everything you're putting your trust in is actually not taking you deeper in your walk with God. It's the exact opposite. And so he says, I am the solution to all of your sufficiency. I am the solution to everything that you need. You will find that in me and only in me. Anytime we're trusting in ourself, that is a problem. And so Jesus says to this church who has all the money in the world, apparently, hey, come and buy gold from me. Come and buy clothes from me. Come and buy the the healing ointment from me. And he's not saying buy it in terms of we actually have to, to do something for it because scripture says the gospel comes to us as a gift, that it is the gift of God that comes to us. And and it's a gift because it is grace. If we could do anything to earn it, it would no longer be grace at that point. Grace would stop being grace. And so it comes to us as his grace, where Jesus says, hey, part of what we do is that we acknowledge that we are sinners. We we are wretched and pitiful and and blind and poor. Like we, We don't have anything on our own. Our best efforts in God's eyes haven't accomplished salvation for us. It hasn't earned us a place in heaven, but it was never going to. Jesus says, this comes to you as a gift. This comes to you as my gift. It's never been about what you can produce. It's never been about you being dependent on other things. It's never been about your self-sufficiency. It's been about you acknowledging that your self-sufficiency hasn't got you to salvation. Only Jesus brings us to salvation where we acknowledge our sin and we repent as this verse calls us to. We turn away from it and we follow after him and we trust in him and we put our hope in him and we draw close to him. So this was a church that had a lot of stuff. This was a culture, a city that had a lot of wealth. They had a lot going on. Jesus says that thing that you are leaning on is actually pulling you away from the gospel. And again, it might not literally be money for us. It could be money potentially for us. But what is it in our lives as we are looking to apply this now? What's the Spirit saying to us? What is it that we have that actually pulls us away from Jesus? What is it we have that actually is something where we can just kind of lean on that and so that we don't have to lean on him? What is something that we can put our hope and trust in that actually is pulling us away from the gospel? So hard words so far, right? It's been a tough, tough letter so far. You make me want to puke. All the stuff you're leaning on is potentially leading you to hell. It's not, you're not in a good place. And then Jesus says this, verse 19, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Like the father heart kicks in. And parents, you've maybe had this conversation of just like, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. 
I don't like doing this, but I'm doing this for your good, right? Like there's, there's something fatherly about this. Jesus says, the ones I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So in the book of Revelation, we will get to this more and more. One of the themes is the wrath of God that's being poured out on the evil in the world. God's anger has reached the point where it's time to deal with sin and wickedness and the devil. And so there's a lot in Revelation about the wrath of God. The wrath of God comes to punish evil. But Jesus says that's not what this is. That's not what he's doing here. That's not what this is about. This is actually about his love. Because he loves the church, and so even though they are perhaps not walking in the gospel the way that they should, they obviously must know Jesus to a certain extent. Jesus says, I love you, and that's why I'm doing this. I care enough about you that I want you to turn away from this toxic direction that you're going. I want you to move away from the things that are pulling you into things that might look like life but can actually lead to death. I want you to find me and find all of your hope in me and find the peace that comes with me. So the ones I love, I rebuke and I discipline. That shows up a few times in Scripture, including Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son or his daughter. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. So everything gets reframed uh, in light of this, right? But this is what love does. This is what love does. Love looks at the ones we love and says, I don't want you to go down the bad path. I don't want you to hurt. I don't want you to be in danger. Love says, I have to correct sometimes. I have to discipline sometimes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. Sometimes we have to have a tough conversation, and it might hurt. It might sting. But when we trust each other, we say, okay, it hurts, but I know good's going to come out of it. It hurts. I know this will be for my good. Every parent disciplines their kids. I don't know any parent who loves doing it, but you do it to, to help your kid and to, to help them grow and to help them grow up strong and to help them grow up good and righteous and, and choosing the right things. And so we say it's not fun, but it's necessary. That correction needs to come. And Jesus, of course, does that for us as one who loves us. And so as Jesus wraps up, he says, I am standing at the door. I'm knocking away. And we often make that a picture of evangelism. It is that, that Jesus is knocking on the door of every heart. He is there. Um, but, you know, he is talking to Christians in this passage, too, who, again, must know him to a certain extent. But it just speaks to his heart. He says, guys, you're making me sick. Your, your wealth is pulling you away from me. Um, I'm doing this because I love you. And then he says, I really just want to be with you. I really just want to be with you. I'm knocking at the door. Will you let me in? Will you actually spend time with me? Will you actually have me in for a meal together? Will you, will you do that? I'm here knocking. Jesus doesn't force himself on anybody, but he knocks on the door and he's there. He is offering. He is reaching out. And it is up to us whether we respond to that or not. Wrapping up, verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so every one of these letters wraps up with a promise. 
that if we will take these words to heart, if we will respond, if we will persevere, if we will hold on, if we will be going, this is the end result. This is what will happen as we get there. So to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And so uh, clear theme throughout both Testaments of Scripture, God's on the throne, right? We, we say that, we sing that. God is sitting on his throne. So added wrinkle in the New Testament is that as Jesus rises from the dead and returns to heaven, uh, he is now also on the throne with the Father. And so there is the Father God. Jesus is there as well. And then added wrinkle again, one of the promises that shows up for us, and it shows up a few times, is that we will also somehow be there with them, ruling and reigning over creation. Now, they're going to be in charge, obviously, but we will rule over creation with them. The reason we will rule over creation with them is because we've been adopted into the family of God as sons, and when your dad is the king, you get to participate in the kingdom. You get to participate in rulership with him. So I don't have a clue how that works with like, you know, billions of people in heaven potentially and who's going to do what. I don't, I don't really know what that's going to look like. But the promise is you are heirs with Christ. You are co-heirs with him. The promises and the blessings that he received, we will also receive. Not the title of Lord, that's his alone, but the blessings that he gets are shared with us. And as we are faithful and as we are victorious, we will walk in the fullness of his victory, which means we will rule and reign with him. So if you've asked, ever wondered, uh, what are we going to be doing for all eternity? That's a really long time. And we often answer, well, we'll worship, right? We're going to worship for all eternity and it will never be enough. And that is true. But that isn't all we're going to be doing because we're going to be busy ruling and reigning with him. There's going to be stuff to do. And that's what he had in mind from the very beginning. That was Adam and Eve's job before sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve were there, God said to them, all right, here's the world. Go have dominion over it. You go rule and reign over this earth. That's your job as human beings. God was still God. He was still the boss. But in his name and in his stead, they were ruling over creation. Jesus is restoring all things back to what was originally planned. And so we will, whatever that looks like, rule and reign with him. Come on up, worship team. We're just, just about ready to wrap up. So we've called this a year of thriving, 2021. A year of thriving. And uh, as we've said over and over again, we didn't want to focus just on kind of how do we keep getting through this time because we don't know how much longer we're going to be here, but we didn't want it just to be like, well, let's just fast forward and just be agitated and bored and want to get through it. Hey, we're, we are where we are. God has us where we are. So how can we thrive where we are? And so reflecting on this as we're seeing what is the Spirit saying to us, uh, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to our church today as we think of the church in Laodicea. How do we thrive in light of the Word of God that we've looked at today? So one... Uh, we're going to thrive when we realize who he is and who we are. And we know the difference between the two. That most of us live as if we're the God of our own life. As if we are in charge, we are making all of our own decisions. The book of James says we shouldn't even be saying, oh, next week I'm going to go here and there and I'm going to make money here and there. Like we shouldn't even say that much. That's how little control we actually have. It says the most we should say is, if the Lord wills it, I will go and do this. If the Lord wills it, I will go and do that. James says anything more than that is arrogant boasting because we're, we're thinking we're God, that we're in control when we're in power, if the Lord wills it. So we will thrive when we realize who he is and who we are. And that's not an easy transition because we're so used to being the boss of our own lives. And yet there is such peace that comes 
when we can truly put ourselves in his hands, when we can truly get to that place where we say, I'm giving up control. I'm giving up my need to to be in charge of everything. I'm giving up lordship of my own life because there can only be one Lord. And if I'm going to say Jesus is Lord, then he actually has to be Lord. I actually have to bow to him in everything and submit myself to him in everything. It's, it's easier said than done, for sure. But we will thrive in that place if we can get to that place where he really is in charge. Because you see it even in the tough words of the Laodicean church of man, he loves us. Man, he loves us. And man, like, like a father, right? Like just, hey, do you want to spend some time? together? Like, do you hear a father's heart in that? I want to come and sit with you. I want to come and be with you. And I, I had this moment with the Lord last week, like I talked about, and I thought afterwards, man, he had to wake me up at 1.30 in the morning so that I could be quiet and still enough just to spend that time with him and not just be doing everything on the go as we're going through the busyness of the week. Like, I, I don't carve out time to just sit and be silent with him. I don't carve out time just to sit with him where I'm not praying or reading my Bible. Like, I, I do all those things, but I don't carve out that time just to be with him as much as I should. And so we're going to thrive in that place. We're going to thrive as we take a look at, okay, what am I actually putting my trust in? If my job left tomorrow, if we lost all our finances tomorrow, if... if illness hit the house tomorrow like what am I putting my trust in because the Laodicean church reminds us that a lot of the things that we lean on we shouldn't be leaning on a lot of the things that we're getting our comfort from actually aren't things that we should be putting our comfort in and and wealth doesn't have to be a bad thing these things are not necessarily bad things on their own it all depends on where our heart's at as it relates to them and are these things helping our walk with God or are they pulling us away from our devotion to God we're going to thrive and this is a fun one when we accept and submit to the rebuke of the Lord in our lives. Woohoo! Amen. Truth, 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 truth. When we accept and submit to the rebuke of the Lord in our lives. And you know why we can do that? Because he says, the ones I love, I chasten. The ones I love, I rebuke. And my dad disciplined me, and I disciplined my kids, so I, I've been on the receiving end and now the giving end. Um, neither one is super fun. <laughs> I don't really like either one of them. But to say, okay, I don't like what's happening, but I'm going to submit to it. The Lord is trying to show me something. Endure hardship as discipline. The Lord is treating you as his kids. Endure hardship as discipline. The Lord is treating you as his kids. So what hardship are you facing right now? We're all going through something. We've all been going through more things in the last year, I'm sure. Can we endure the hardships that we're facing as if the Lord is working something out in our lives? It doesn't mean that the circumstance is good. It doesn't mean that the situation is good. It doesn't mean that it's right even necessarily. But we also trust if God didn't want us here, we wouldn't be here. If God didn't want us in the middle of it, we wouldn't be in the middle of it. And so if we find ourselves in the middle of it, our job is to then say, okay, Lord, well, what are you doing in the middle of it? Where am I being humbled? Where am I being broken? Where am I being brought to that place of humility before you? Where is my character being shaped? Where are you pointing out my sin? Where are you pointing out my fear? Where are you pointing out my anger, my frustration, my worry? Where are these things that are coming up in the hardship that he actually might just want to deal with? and is using the hardship to show us that. And we spend so much time raging against the struggle, raging against the circumstance, raging against the hardship. How much time have we spent angry in the last year, frustrated, annoyed? 
It's like, no, God, what are you doing in this time? I'm not saying that those feelings aren't natural. I'm not saying that the situation is good or right. I'm just saying God's in control or he's not. And if he's in control and he has us here, then he has us here for a reason. And so to say, okay, Lord, what are you doing then? So I told you, and I was up in the middle of the night, there were two things that the Lord had showed me. And so I shared the first one already. Here is the second one, and it ties into all this, is that it was a picture of Jacob wrestling with God. Remember the story, book of Genesis, Jacob is wrestling with God. Jacob was not a good guy. He was a liar. And Jacob's whole mode in life was, I need to make the blessing happen. And if I need to steal it, if I need to lie for it, if I need to manipulate it, I will do whatever it takes to make my standing better. I will do whatever it takes to make the blessing happen. I will do whatever it takes to increase my wealth, to increase my chances. And he did, including sinful ways. Jacob was always just taking it into his own hands in order to make the blessing happen. And then God shows up to him one day. Jacob doesn't know that it's God. And they wrestle face to face. He wrestles with God. And then eventually God is ready for it to be done. God says, all right, we're coming to the end of this. And Jacob grabs onto God and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God says, ding, 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 yes. I am the source of all your blessing. I'm the source of your blessing. You don't lie for it. You don't steal for it. You don't manipulate for it. I am the one who gives you the blessing. When I bless you, you will be blessed. If I withhold my blessing, you will not be blessed. Jacob has this insight somehow that he is face to face with God and he understands in that moment, I've been going about this all wrong. I need God's blessing. That's how I'm going to thrive in this life. And Jacob gets his hip wrenched out in the process. He walks with a limp for the rest of his life, but Jacob is never ever the same after that. He's a completely different guy from that point forward. He understood who his God was and he understood who we are. So this picture, as I was lying there that night, God wrestling with Jacob, eventually wrestling Jacob to the point where Jacob submits, where Jacob understands what God wants him to understand about who God is and about who Jacob is. And if Jacob hadn't had that revelation, I'm sure they would have kept wrestling and kept wrestling and kept wrestling. And what I feel like the Lord is saying to us, to all of us, is that we are all wrestling with God right now in this season. And he is trying to wrestle us to that point of trust and submission to him. And some of us are just getting so mad at the circumstance, we won't stop fighting it. We won't stop pushing. We won't stop being angry. We won't stop being terrified. We won't stop being worried. We're going through a whole lot of things right now. God is wrestling all of us to the ground, and that's a really, really good thing. He's wrestling all of us to the ground where we get to that point where we say, God, I submit, I give. Uncle, my hip is wrenched and I've been through a fight. I give. It's all about you. It's not about me. It's never been about me. It is all about you. And I I give up that sense of control and that sense of, of the need to be in charge of everything and that sense of trying to do it all myself, that Laodicean attitude of I've got everything I need on my own. Thank you very much. God is wrestling all of us to that place. And can we trust him enough? And I'll encourage you to take some quiet time this week, just as I had this last week. Don't do it at three in the morning if you don't have to. I was still tired the next day. It was a good day, but it was sleepy. But to actually be able to spend that time, Jesus is knocking on the door saying, I just want to hang out. Spend that time with him. And and let that happen. Lord, I, I submit. Whatever you want to do right now, I submit. 
Whatever you're doing in my heart, I submit. Whatever you are trying to teach me, whatever you need to, need to give up, whatever you want to do in me, I, I give that to you. And I tell you, I had that moment on Wednesday night. And even though I didn't get back to sleep uh, that night, I just got up and went to work at that point. Um, I felt like a completely different person. It just felt like, oh, I've been trying so hard to be on top of this and control things and try to make things happen. Like, I, I've been doing that. And, and that's a very Laodicean attitude that we, we lean on ourselves. We lean on what we can do. We lean on our resources. And yet there's this place of brokenness and submission before the Lord that is actually better. It's actually just better. And there's a lot of peace that comes when we do that, where we say, Jesus, you are all I need. You are everything I need. And, and I give up everything in order to follow after you. So we're going to worship in, in that vein uh, for a few more minutes before we wrap up. I'll ask you to stand to your feet, please, here in the room. If you're at home, please join with us as we sing. The words will be up on the screen. And let's worship him out of the heart of what he's doing.